This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to the Minefield, a show about negotiating the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Uh, Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host this week, as he is just about every week. Uh, and this is a, a week two of our Neglected Practices series, which coincides with the month of Ramadan, which we try to do something of this kind uh, every year. This is what we came up with this year. Scott, this will be fun, this one. I've got a feeling. It threatens to be the worst show we've ever done. Yeah, um, it's true. <laughs> but that often means it could be the best. <laughs> I, I do. You know, there are a handful of shows where we quite literally had no idea where the conversation was leading. We had the vaguest idea of the topic, but really no firm commitment as to what we thought about the topic. And neither did the guest. <laughs> and we <laughs> just kind of plunked ourselves in the same audio space and tried to feel our way through to some kind of conclusion. And you're right, Willie. I actually think they've been some of our very very best ones, which tells you something, I think, about the nature of genuine conversation. Yes, and also about the futility of much media activity. (laughs) (laughs) The reason I think today, we sort of foreshadowed this last week. We did. This might be the show where we just sit around and say nothing for an hour. (laughs) Almost quite, almost literally, that we might just say that we don't know things. Why might that happen today, Scott? Okay. All right. Well, look, uh, last week, we kicked off with a neglected practice. And look, I I should say here at the outset, last week may have felt very, very impractical or imprecise to a great many of our listeners. And yet it seems to me that it's really important that we hold on to the idea of attentiveness as a practice. In other words, something that really is cultivated, something we really do try to work on and get better at. So uh, an active thing. It is an active thing. And, and, yeah. and the way that our guest last week, Rebecca Roselle Stone, uh, described it as something that is both active and passive at the same time. On, on reflection, I think, you know, we, we hear the phrase and sometimes we use the phrase, that person's a really active listener. I mean, there is something kind of weird and paradoxical about that, but you really can feel when somebody is attending to you and what you think and the way in which one is trying or maybe failing to articulate something important. And yet the person is there, not in a pandering or patronizing way, but really waiting to try to respond morally and intelligibly and articulately to whatever it is that you are kind of slowly trying to bring into the world. There is a real skill. I mean, you and I both know people who I think, are extraordinary listeners and that there is a cultivation that goes into that. Mm. And it's not just a cultivation of, I think I'm going to listen now. Yeah, yeah. It's a cultivation of a whole habit of living, I think. I think that's right. Yeah. There is a a disposition to it Yes, uh, that goes beyond this is simply the kind of person that I am. No, I see. That's interesting. I wouldn't have put it that way. I would have put it, um, precisely in that way. This is the kind of person that I am. That is, this is not an activity I'm engaged in. I listen good. That this is a whole of my existence thing. Yeah, um, yeah. This is the way I am. And, you know, we, we spent a lot of time last week talking about ego. Hmm. I guess it's about that, isn't it? It's about the suppression of ego. I think I think that that's right. When I say that goes beyond this is simply who I am, I guess what I was thinking there of Montaigne's uh, critique or his qualification of certain concepts of virtue. So he, he said, for instance, that um, this is Montaigne, the 15th, 16th century French. He's not really a philosopher. I like to think of him as a philosopher, but a lot of people disagree that he qualifies as a philosopher. Uh, but he used to say that cruelty is entirely alien to his nature. Therefore, lack of cruelty or his refusal to be cruel or his willingness to be gentle isn't really a virtue. It's simply a disposition. So you're saying that someone who's not attentive merely by the happenstance of their DNA or something. Yeah. But yeah, okay, I understand that. Yeah. Um, so, So if we think of attentiveness as something that really is 
something you work on, something that you practice, something you try to get better at. It seems to me that there are a number of other activities or habits or practices that must necessarily go along with that. There are things that we can do in order to become more attentive. Something else I was thinking about last week, we didn't, I mean, we touched on it very briefly. We didn't really talk about it all that much. But, you know, Willie, we, we both belong to uh, religious traditions that spend inordinate amounts of time, centuries, millennia even, poring over particular sentences of Scripture, e- even in many cases, poring over or lingering with for years or decades, or centuries, particular words, what a particular word might mean. And it's that practice of remaining with one big thing, staying with that thing, because remaining with that one thing can be something that is nourishing to one's entire life, that transforms the way that one carries out one's relationships with others. These needn't even be sacred texts, I think. I mean, there there are novels that I, I will read as a matter of habit, as a matter of discipline every year, because every time I read it, there is something new that, if you like, awakens in my soul, something that I just didn't see before, something that leaves me perpetually sort of transformed in the way that I think about the world, the way that I look at the world. I mean, Anna Karenina is one of those. Uh, James Kutsia's novel, uh, Elizabeth Costello, is another one. These are books, I mean, I, I date my life in terms of before and after having read those novels. That just tells you how otherwise boring my life is. But, uh, but that practice of attentiveness to give oneself over to one big thing, I mean, that for me is, is incredibly important and becoming increasingly rare in the time in which we live, where we glide superficially across so many different things. And I think even more than that, we feel that we have a moral obligation to be across all of these different things. So, I mean, you have you would have had it, Willie, surely, almost every day. Oh, Willie, did you hear about mm. something being reported wherever? And if you say, oh, no, I didn't, that look of effrontery mm. on the part of the other person as if not being across that thing is somehow a moral failing in being sufficiently informed about the world. I think it's in describing that that we begin to get slowly but surely to the topic for today, which is if attentiveness is a practice, a habit that we neglect to our peril, then I think one of the things that needs to go along with that is the massive curtailment of what it is that we feel we need to know. In other words, a massive curtailment of the knowledge that we bring into our lives so that we can spend more time attending to, lingering with, tearing with, meditating on those things that we feel we really ought to know. Yes. It's probably the greatest affliction of our time that no one's allowed not to know anything. But Mm -hmm. what you have said, I think, raises a question yeah, it does. Which has to be answered, which is, by what criteria do we just decide? <laughs> right. Exactly right. <laughs> those things that we should know and those things which we should not. Can I, I mean, I'd love for you to have a crack at answering that. No, but no, can I I'd just, rather you have a crack at answering <laughs> Well, Well, no. I mean, another way of actually framing that is, doesn't the luxury of not knowing certain things, at what point does that tip over into something like willful ignorance? In other words, this is the reality of the world around me. At what point can I legitimately, authentically, in a morally defensible way, saying, I don't think that reality about the world around me needs to impinge itself, impress itself upon my attention. I can hold it at bay. I can keep it out of my consciousness and I can do it with good justification. Uh, or at what point does is that simply, I mean, we, again, you and I both know people whose willful ignorance is not exactly virtuous. Uh, there is tremendous pain being undergone in the world around them. And the ability to hold that pain at bay and to say that that pain, that story, that history, that ongoing experience of injustice need not make any moral claim upon my life. That, that's not virtuous. That's, in fact, 
vicious. Okay, so last week we spent quite a bit of time actually talking about genocide. Yeah. Is a genocide happening on the other side of the world that you have no capacity to affect something you should know or something you're justified in not knowing and not inquiring about? Hmm. You're asking me or are yeah. you posing this as a... Must yeah. be. Well, I don't know. Whatever's more impressive. <laughs> do you, do you, is there an answer to that question? <laughs> Whatever's more impressive. See, that, that just raised the stakes. Yeah, it did. <laughs> um, look, I actually find it a really difficult question simply because when you say there's nothing that we can do about it, I think a lot of people would actually dispute that there's nothing we can do about it because, as we talked about last week one of the effects of the age of mass-produced opinion is that having an opinion and feeling really strongly about that opinion has been elevated to the status of a moral act. So feeling something very, very strongly and condemning something in one's heart or in one's social media stream or to other people then becomes a way of morally enacting that thing that I so forcibly, with every fiber in my being, object to. I think this is where I'm not sure, well, I'm not not sure, I strongly believe that having an opinion is not a moral act. Uh, Sorry, you mean having an opinion is not necessarily a moral act? Or do you mean having an opinion is never a moral act? Uh, Because of the way that the two of us feel differently about intention and the moral status of intentionality, my hunch here, and I I think I'm 90% of the way towards fully embracing this hunch, although not 100, uh, my hunch is that an opinion is good only insofar as it translates into some form of life, Uh, insofar as it leads to either a sacrifice or to some kind of modification or curtailment or chastising of one's behavior in such a way that that opinion becomes a moral reality in the way that one lives with others. Simply feeling something very, very strongly, I do not think, has moral status in and of itself. Now, the immediate question then becomes, let's just say that my opinion is that a particular gender, say, uh, has a fundamental moral incapacity to it where it can never reach to a certain moral level that the other gender can. Or let's just say that I'm convinced of the inferiority of a particular race or of the civilizational superiority of a particular tradition. Now, those are, are they opinions? I'm not sure. They are ways of orienting oneself towards the world that I think if they linger in the soul, can profoundly corrupt one's dealings with others and can lead to a kind of irrepressible contemptuousness in the way that one behaves towards and sees others. I guess my question is, is that seeing of others, if the other person isn't completely aware of it, is that then something that is morally culpable? Or is there an opinion that I can be nurturing, that I may be half convinced of, that I haven't fully embraced, but that I'm trying to understand how I should respond to it? Is that something that can work itself out in the confines of my own conscience, in my own thinking? And then Uh, in time, through my dealings with others, in the way that I try to align my life with the way that I believe the world is and the way the world should be, uh, that it then surfaces in ways that are more virtuous and defensible. That, I think, is probably where I'd want to go. Uh, But I'm not sure that having an opinion as such is something that is either morally uh, interesting or that is morally consequential. So, But that would mean there are times where you're compelled to have an opinion. Wouldn't it? Compelled to have an opinion to the extent that I believe that that opinion needs to then surface in my life in a morally meaningful way. We, we talked a lot last week. So, well, sorry, can about, I pause you there? Yeah. Part of the issue, part of the imperative to know everything and have an opinion about everything is to express a kind of moral seriousness about things, right? Yes. In the hopes that by expressing that moral seriousness with enough other people who are similarly expressing their moral seriousnesses, that that then leads to something like, well, whatever change it is that we're talking about. Okay. So 
even using your approach, you can very quickly end up in a situation where you become compelled to have an opinion on everything. You just need to moralize everything. You just need to have it such that it sits in some kind of moral register. Uh, I, I, could, I could say to you, I mean, I don't like this argument, by the way. Yeah. But I, I'm just saying it's, it's a plausible argument on the terms you've set. If I, I could say to you, you really must have an opinion on whatever happened in that reality TV show last night. Because actually it really is important. Like it says a lot about well, some notion of justice or whatever. That's not a difficult thing to imagine. In fact, that happens all the time. Mm-hmm. I think one of the one of the problems we are currently grappling with is that we're trying to just impregnate everything with a kind of moral status that it shouldn't really be burdened with. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, and that, in fact, was going to be my response. But but, but I, I can think... do that, right? And then on your terms, that still becomes legitimate opinion, right? I, yeah, I, yeah. I think this becomes more interesting at the point where you can say, here's something that is really important, and I'm not having an opinion about it. Yeah. <laughs> That's where it becomes really fascinating, I think. Because what you're kind of saying is you should only really have opinions about important things and all I have to do is redefine importance. Mm. Look, I, I think that's a, that's a fascinating and I think a really helpful way of putting it. I think the point at which I would push back, uh, and I think we need to devote an entire show to this, I think there is something fundamentally corrupt in the way that we understand quote-unquote moral morality, moralistic, moral seriousness. Sure. There are far too many things that have that particular description assigned to them that quite frankly do not deserve it. And, and, and even more than that, I think our understanding of what, quote-unquote, the moral is uh, has become something that's already been corrupted by the fashionability of opinion where one's moral seriousness is something that one wears. Can I just, can I just go, though, to the particular instance that you raise, that this is really important and I do not have an opinion about it. Mm. That, it seems to me, that itself is an incredibly important moral stance to adopt. Because we talked a lot about Soren Kierkegaard, or we talked a little bit about Soren Kierkegaard last week. Kierkegaard placed huge importance on the importance, sorry, on the significance, on the morally formative nature of silence in a world in which words and opinions are proliferating. Mm. And what silence is, is the incubator. It's the context in which the importance of something uh, registers in my life, registers in the way that I understand the world and the way the world makes its claim upon me. And so I think one of the problems is we kind of live with this proliferation of words and things about which we're supposed to feel very, very strongly. And the ability to be able to say to myself, to be able to say to one another, I have no doubt that this is seismically important. I have no words to describe why it should be important to me. What one then does with that, the particular trajectory that you then follow, I think is the one that needs to be given far more importance, uh, far more attention rather than simply, this is a big deal. You need to have something to say about it, or this needs to be something about which you care very, very, very strongly. Here, I think the ought is really significant. There are things about which you ought to have an opinion. And I think that that ought is much, much, much more limited than we've given ourselves permission. So let's go back to the genocide example. Yeah. Is that an important thing that it would be a moral response to say, or where it would be a moral response to say, I don't have an opinion on it? To feel really strongly about a genocide that has taken place may well simply be a matter of the humanity of another people imposing themselves upon my conception about what it means to be a fully-fledged thoroughgoing, deep human being. For instance, one of the things that often accompanies a lot of agonizing about genocide is that the relative worth of a particular group of people is measured by the number of people who died. Mm. Uh, in, in other words, there tends to be a degree of objectification in the way that we think about the scale of a particular genocide. Whereas 
going that next step and allowing the full humanity of the particular persons, if I can put it that way, to impose themselves. In other words, these are people who enjoy leisure in the way that we do, that feel loss in the way that we do, that feel the loss of a child, for instance, and the irreplaceability of that child in the way that we do. That, I think, would be a way of allowing the moral reality of a genocide to impinge itself upon us. I think the other way, Walid, is what are the conditions in which genocide becomes possible? And to what extent am I complicit in certain ways that I live in similar conditions that see people as less than thoroughgoing human beings? See, that, that I think would be the way in which a genocide would become a moral reality or a response to genocide right. might become a moral reality in my life rather than simply, oh my God, that many people died as a result so of military or state action. You don't need to take a position or have an opinion with any granular detail on the genocide that's happening. What you need to do is be alive to the spiritual diseases that make it possible. Quite possibly, yes, or a, an appropriate moral response to genocide may well be purchasing and reading a book, a novel, a, a work of history or of political science that gives you something like the granular detail of the lives of the people that underwent that experience. That would, that for me would be a way of knowing what we ought to know rather than simply feeling that we ought to have very strong opinions about everything that the Guardian says we ought to have strong opinions about. You like referencing the Guardian, don't you? Uh, anyway, there's a lot of things to pick up on there and I'll do that in a second. But first, this it is the Minefield. You can listen to the show on RN as you may be doing right now. In which case, thank you very much for doing that. But you can catch the podcast anytime on the ABC Listen app or you can listen to it as a podcast. You follow the Minefield wherever you follow podcasts, basically, and you should find us there. All right, Scott. We have a guest who's been waiting very, very patiently. Uh, she has been waiting. And I, I will also just say that it was surprisingly difficult to try to imagine what guest could we possibly pitch? We want to bring you into a studio and to talk to you for a half hour, basically about not knowing, about what we shouldn't know. That, that's a pretty tall ask, but our guest has risen to the challenge with gusto and characteristic brilliance. Robin Farrell is adjunct professor in the Center for Law, Art, and Humanities at Australian National University. She's the author of her most recent book, is a fabulous little piece, which is, it seems to me, indispensable reading in an internet age in the same way that Gustave Flaubert's little dictionary of received ideas was for a popular press age. It's called Philosophical Essays on Free Stuff. Robin, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. Thanks so much for the build-up, Scott. That's brilliant. <laughs> that, um, that, little book, that, that little book of Flaubert's, by the way, it's, it's a series of ironic dictionary entries on the proper use of the mass media articles that one finds around the house. He's got this beautiful entry about the proper use of a newspaper, which of course isn't to glean knowledge from, he says, but rather to leave conspicuously open on the drawing table or the coffee table so that when yeah. guests come around, they can see that you've opened it up to the most intelligent, world-oriented page. It's not really about reading. It's about wearing like a fashion item. I, I just thought that was quite... Hang on. Why you can't know? you say that about books? You can probably say that about books, and a lot of people do. Anyway, I've got lots to say about people who, say, colour coordinate their libraries. Oh, is, Susan's um, one of those. I Can know I, she is, sorry. which is why I'm holding my... Th no, sorry, it's, it's, Robin. Sorry, Robin. This is far more important than the show that we're about to do. <laughs> Can you, Scott, just lay out exactly what moral depravities are involved in colour coding no. your library? No, 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 no. There are no moral depravities at all. But for oh. someone who organises their entire mental arsenal in terms of associated ideas and progressions from one set of ideas to the next. I mean, my, my bookshelf would make you giggle, Waleed. I've, I've no doubt because it says everything about what I think first principles are and what then follows from what. It's a crazy way of organizing one's thoughts externally. You know, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just put it that way. All right, Robin, welcome back to the show. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> All right. So look, where I thought, it's your book actually on free stuff that really got me thinking, I think, much more clearly about this. I think we need to say something about the the status of knowledge in an internet age, because it seems to me that one of the things that we're faced with 
uh, if we think about knowledge and circulating information or information that's available for free, people can sort of find it wherever they like unless, you know, it's on the other side of a paywall, is that the internet and then the companies that that have found their home and try to make their profit off the internet, they most often tend to be quite agnostic when it comes to the information that is available. So you can say, for instance, that the true, the trivial, and the blatantly manufactured are all jostling together on many, many sites. And it doesn't really matter. There's no value judgment if you click on the weighty you know, article or, or if you follow that up with a fairly trivial little piece to dally with. All of them register in terms of traffic, in terms of hits. The real point of information is to act as a lure, is to keep you quote-unquote, engaged in the site. In other words, information or knowledge itself has the status, doesn't it, of a commodity. And if it has the status of a commodity, then the whole purpose of information, of knowledge, is to get you moving from one bit of knowledge to the next, to the next, to the next, such that you never then find yourself in a position where you feel like you have to depart the site altogether. Yeah, absolutely. There's a couple of things that... um uh, well, I've got a lot to say, but that probably too much, so I'll try and keep it short. I'd like to just bracket um, an anxiety about the relation between moral philosophy and uh, epistemology or knowledge, which we could mm. come back to. But I suppose the two things that it occurs to me um, listening to the way that you were setting up the discussion is that, first of all, and these are sort of two different registers probably of engaging with the question of knowing and not knowing, On on the one hand, it seems to me that the virtue of not knowing would be counterintuitive anyway in our democratic age because we make a sort of an, a freedom of knowledge as a kind of ideological commitment that flows from democratic values. And that seems to me to blind us perhaps um, sometimes to other more nuanced questions about whether people know in the same way or can know the same material. And then the point that you were making, I think more specifically, is very important in trying to evaluate what our judgments about it will be, because of course, um, our knowledge comes to us already completely filtered by the commodification that everything undergoes, you know, in what I'll, I don't know, I hate to use a technical jargon, no, but something use, like... Use technical <laughs> jargon. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, basically the culture industry is is the interface here. So we're not coming upon this material in any kind of um, immediate way. It's been mediated in several different ways. I mean, and in the first most trivial way, of course, as you say, in the outline of a, of a news bulletin or the outline of a magazine structure or something, we've got a, a kind of um, a setting, a commercial setting in which um, often there are advertisements and other kinds of marketing structured into the feed itself, right? But even if we're talking on, you know, the wonderful ABC, we have to acknowledge that these are genres that have been constructed according to a kind of commodity around assumptions about whether we can be drawn in to listen to it. So it seems to me that, that kind, those kinds of ways in which knowledge is mediated through these other imperatives of, um, frankly, I suppose, profit-making, but profit-making that works at the level of um, a kind of seduction um, on the, you know, trying to seduce listeners to keep with the material, those really complicate our reception of knowledge in the present circumstances that we live in. And this idea that um, that all goes on within a kind of liberal democratic framework is also, I think, at odds with that in a way because this ethos of there being freedom of information is clearly not true. <laughs> you know, it's empirically false um, when we look at those sorts of marketing structures that surround the dissemination, at least in the mass media and in social media. Does that analysis apply equally to something like social media where the content is at least ostensibly user-generated? So the idea I think is to remove the filter. I think it's um, worse in social media because the filter's not removed at all. I mean, in the in the originating impulse of the internet, there was all this hope that it would be a kind of commons, you know, that where people could share in that immediate sort of way. But, of course, by now it's completely, you know, to go on using the language, uh, it's been completely enclosed by big tech from Facebook and Google and the marketing orientation that's around all of those um, platforms now that, that we need to use on social media, I think compromises that 
possibility and, in fact, ramps up the alternative, which is that this knowledge is product. Mm. The one you left out is Twitter, which yes. is slightly different, right? I mean, Twitter is um, a kind of de- even more deceptive, isn't it? Because to be in Twitter, you've got to somehow be in the discussion. And the discussion is itself framed around what is and is not worth hearing or reading um, in that audience. So it seems that although at a very straightforward level people are saying what they think or what they mean, the ways in which that they come to that opinion, um, it seems to me, uh, comes out of a kind of already commodified structure. And in fact, one of the things that I, I try and look at in the book, and this is a little bit complicated to sort of just do in two sentences, but the way in which we ourselves become constructed as commodities in that listening and speaking in that space. I'm attracted to this analysis at the same time as I feel a, a, a strange compulsion to resist it. I think, <laughs> I think because if you were to follow this too far, then any kind of knowledge production is just that, a, a form of knowledge production, right? And if you emphasise the production element of it, that is that there are interests and institutions and there's money and power or whatever behind what is knowable and what counts as knowledge, then it seems to me you run the risk of, of vitiating the whole idea of knowledge in and of itself, that knowledge sort of begins to be something that can't exist, which I don't think is a tolerable position for us to end up in either, even if we want to celebrate the idea of not knowing things or accepting yeah. the limits of our knowledge. Yeah, but, but, but hang on. Sorry, just before you come in there, Robin, I, I think there's one dimension here, which, again, we've touched on, but I think that you're leaving out, Waleed, in the way that you just described that dilemma, which is it's not just that knowledge production is already to some extent mediated, it already passes through some sort of basic filter of interest. But it's also that the consumption of that knowledge which is produced has in fact been given either a democratic or an explicitly moral frame. If, if that information exists, then you have one of two obligations or maybe both obligations incumbent upon you. Obligation number one is if that knowledge exists, then you have a right to it and you should consume it and make up your mind concerning it. So, you, you know, you, you hear these kind of appeals all the time. We'll leave it to our listeners to decide. The other one, which I think is the more insidious one, which is if you don't engage, then you are morally culpable for your act of disengagement. Therefore, being engaged, and I mean, ultimately, when we talk about, say, being quote-unquote woke, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the moralization of persistent, perpetual engagement with certain forms of online information and being in a heightened state of producing one's opinions in response to that. So I think what, what we've got here isn't just the production of knowledge in a certain mediated form, but then there's the democratic come moral overlay that then accompanies that, which is if this is being produced, you ought to be engaged with it. And I think it's that ought that accompanies it. That's what I imagined us pushing back against in a far more concerted way in this discussion. So I think that's, yeah, those are both really valid takes on the situation. And and just to pick up, first of all, on what you were saying, Waleed, I I think the process of the construction of knowledge as as product is necessarily incomplete because the model that's being this idea of of an immediate and perfect transmission is not actually very real, right? So, for example... This is a problem, of course, with social media as well, but it is perhaps also the space in which other knowledge is formed and new knowledge comes to pass, whether it's organised or not. People have different capacities for knowledge, (laughs) depending on a great deal of factors, including, um, well, starting from their embodiment. So, for example, a whole series of, of kinds of knowledge that are directed, let's say, at a male attention when brought to female attention, may produce a slightly different mm. response. And there are a number of, you know, all kinds of ways in which we could imagine. So that model of a perfect transmission from the production of the knowledge to the knower, I think, is very flawed. And we should be glad of that, perhaps, <laughs> because it leaves the system, as described there, incomplete. Otherwise, it's really quite um, depressing. 
Although I would like to say in connection to that, that I think it's very alarming that the enclosures of these internet spaces is so dominated by Mm. so few um, directed platforms, you know, because I think that does foreclose on a lot of variety that or diversity that needs to be there to test different kinds of knowledge. But that probably does also lead a little into what you were saying, Scott, about um, where would our obligation as knowledge consumers arise in this set of circumstances? I mean, in the first place, it doesn't seem to me it's possible to be consciously inside the democratic citizenship type paradigm and not take up those kinds of moral obligations that are given you. You know, for example, well, I some thought experiment about, you know, can there be a genocide that is happening on the other side of the world that I can't do anything about? Am I entitled not to have an opinion about it? And I think that as things are constructed presently, the answer to that is probably no you are obliged to have an opinion about it unless you can find an equal and opposing democratic principle that would militate against it. I don't know what that principle would be. Sorry, are you saying that that obligation is as you would have it or are you saying that that obligation is a function of our current information systems? I think it's a function. I'm not not expressing a personal... I mean, I suppose in that way I'm talking about a moral field as itself a kind of production and that's going to sound very depressing too, isn't it? <laughs> well, it all, it's all just sounding a bit too postmodern for me, I think. Yes. So I, th- I think we reach this point where, I, I mean, at risk of repeating what I said before, nothing's ultimately knowable because nothing's perfectly transmissible and even the moral judgments that we might bring to bear on these questions are themselves constructions and therefore, you know, what does it all mean? Let's just go drink coffee. And I'm not sure where that in the end leads us. I feel like... Well, can we flip it? Sure. Can we flip it so that actually, seen from the other view, we could say actually knowledge must be produced in order to be known. So then what we need to ask are more positive questions about, well, what are our frames of reference going to be? And I think that leaves more room for a kind of intervention, yeah, conscious intervention on the part of the knower. So how would you then go ahead and populate that? Well, I'm thinking, for example, uh, let's use the example of um, gender because it's one that's, you know, pretty current presently. There are ways in which certain kinds of things are known, even about um, what bodily comfort would be or what particularly, say, in the area of what is um, sexually desirable and those sorts of questions. And if you bring a kind of a more um, feminine lens to some of those questions, you can modify those propositions just out of your own experience because I think it's very important that knowledge arises from experience as much as anything else. It's quite notable on the internet, for example, that people have opinions about or manner of things that are a bit outlandish. But when it comes to something that's right in their backyard happening or even, you know, happening to them physically, they're reasonably clear-sighted. So I, I think that one of the ways to to look at positive production of knowledge is to look at how to speak out of one's own place in things and to speak to the knowledge that is presented to us. Hmm, Interesting. Um, if you've just joined us, you're listening to The Minefield. Well, Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. We're joined today by Robin Farrell, who's an adjunct professor at the Centre for Law, Art and Humanities at the Australian National University. And we're talking about not knowing stuff. So let me just take a little bit of a, well, not so much a detour, maybe a sharp right-hand turn. I'll confess that one of the things that really informs me throughout this discussion is the fact that while the times in which we live are in some respects extremely unusual, certainly in terms of the sheer tonnage, the sheer number of people that are engaging together in this informational space, it seems to me that many of the moral and political problems that we are encountering now were actually in fact also encountered, say, in the middle of the 19th century. And we're seen with a relative degree of clarity that I think in many respects we fail to bring to our situation now. So it, it, it strikes me, for instance, 
that that Soren Kierkegaard, again, just to go back, this informs me profoundly, is the fact that there comes a moment in any process of digesting or of encountering uh, knowledge that's been produced, there comes a moment at which something that one encounters ought to elicit a kind of moral silence. In other words, a, an experience of being arrested in one's tracks. I need to think about that. I need to weigh that up and square it with my own experience. I need to work out the implications. If that is true, what would it then mean for the way that I live and for the way that I see others? So there comes a moment at which when one encounters a certain form of knowledge, a knowledge with, say, a particular, that exerts a particular moral claim upon oneself, you, you feel it, an experiential claim, that that elicits silence. And silence for Kierkegaard and, and he wrote this with specific reference to the way that we handle, the way that we use, the way that we abuse newspapers. He says that silence is then the incubation, the incubator. Silence is the thing that incubates moral action because it's only through a period of non-reading. It's only through a period of non-stimulation through the, through, uh, by means of other forms of knowledge that one then finds something like the requisite degree of moral articulacy, whereby one can say, this is then what I should do. This is how my life should be different. And, and I think what, what's interesting for me is that what Kierkegaard said, what he contrasted, the moral action that comes out of silence, he said the opposite of that is what he called chatter. In other words, cheap opinion, cheap uh, reflection on or response to. And what I think we've done in this cycle of news consumption, of knowledge production, and of knowledge distribution, circulation, engagement, is that we've effectively moralized chatter. We've given chatter a degree of moral weight, whereas it really is, I think, for the most part, inconsequential. What I'm wondering about is that proper moment that Kierkegaard describes, that proper moment where finding something out makes one stop, makes one engage in a degree of silence, which mightn't mean reading nothing, but what it might mean is closing the website, disengaging from the phone, picking up something else, or in fact reading nothing at all and letting this do its proper work in one's soul. So I think for, for me, it's that moment of I can't go responsibly any further having found out what I've just found out and still be a morally defensible agent. It's that moment of silence after which everything that produces from it becomes a kind of cheapening form of chatter. I guess it's that moment of silence, because we're talking about cultivated practices here. It's that moment of silence in an age like ours that I'm really interested in. Yeah, well, I can totally relate to that, I suppose, is the best way to put it in terms of any reader of philosophy will say that that's almost the only way that you can get the maximum um, revolutions out of a piece of philosophical writing. After every to, paragraph, as a matter of fact. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it should take you, you know, what is it, Descartes said, you know, he only did philosophy four hours a year because of that. Um, mm. And I think that's, um, so I think that's absolutely right. Um, you were talking about attention, of course, um, last week. And so there is a there is a way in which this is a, a question of, of attentiveness as well. So if, if we were going to talk about knowledge as a practice, then we would definitely need to factor into that the silence or the space of contemplation. And obviously knowledge, in, a, in many ways, we wouldn't even want to classify the sort of chatter that passes for information as the same thing as knowledge at all. I mean, and, knowledge and, is a very large And yet category. there, Robin, sorry, sorry, but, but, but and, and yet, just to go back to what we were discussing before, chatter now has also been commodified as a form of online engagement. I mean, what is Facebook? What is Twitter apart from mass-mediated chatter? It is, and, it's, and, and you could say the problem is more dire than that because opinion, even learned opinion, is now um, a commodity, Mm. So the whole situation, I do think it's not overdramatic to say that our ways of knowing and coming to understanding are severely challenged by this um, wholesale organisation of discourse under the rubric of commodity. Yeah, but I think what is most important 
in the context of this conversation is the imperative to know. So it's not, I mean, yes, we can have a conversation about excessive chattering. I think there's a show to be done on silence. We've probably done one before. And, and I understand there's a relationship between not knowing and not speaking. But I think the more radical question in our environment is the extent to which we can, indeed we should, say that's none of my business. Mm. Not mm. not like um, I don't have the best information so I'll withdraw, withhold my judgment for a time or um, does this thing that I know really count as knowledge but rather a different question. I do not need to know that and I will make no – I will – make an effort not to know it. Mm. So can I ask a question, Waleed, about that? Yeah. In what uh, register do you imagine, you know, making that statement? What do you mean by register? Who are you addressing? Oh, what circumstances my, are you addressing? Myself. Mm. And in all kinds of circumstances. It could be private. I don't need to know about this piece of gossip that my friend wants to tell me about, about their boss or about their other friend or about our mutual friend. Yes, uh, but well, I, could that go all the way up to the level of I don't need to know about the details of the allegation made against a senior federal government figure, for well, instance? Well, so I was going to extend it up the levels and I suppose what you've got to is the end point and that's a very interesting question. So what do we think about that? Because undoubtedly a matter of grave public importance an allegation against the senior minister, um, not least of all someone who at the time was the the first law officer in the nation, right? Yeah. Most of which is unknowable mm. to most of us. Huge media industry seemed to uh, arise in the aftermath of it, of posturing a level of knowability that I just think wasn't there or, or was unjustifiable on the facts, right? Is there a moral response to that that says I am prepared to engage with public interest questions about what to do with an allegation but I am not prepared or I make no attempt, I deliberately make no attempt to discover any of the details that are unknowable? Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a very interesting thought experiment. Well, it's more than a thought experiment. Of course, it was in the world. It, no, it <laughs> in, was a very real question that... Yeah. I know I asked myself that question and I, I yeah. don't know if I was alone. I suspect I wasn't. Quite a few people in that situation are probably lost sight of what it is to assess the fitness for office of somebody. I think there was a time when um, people's sexual peccadilloes actually said nothing about their ability to be the first law officer and that's an interesting change. <laughs> I mean, sometimes when I look at that situation, I feel like um, it's the way that a lot of people are being ambushed or mugged these days because of uh, social media and other kinds of, you know, the voracious appetite to know. So I, I really sympathise with what you're saying there, Waleed. It's quite common for people to um, find that they lose things like careers and jobs, even though rumour and so on is, in you know, never tested in a court of law, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I also thought in that particular case there's a, and I don't know how much you're going to like this answer, <laughs> but I think there's a kind of um, mythos at work also in some of these situations that attract a lot of intense scrutiny. Well, they don't attach, uh, sorry, they don't attract scrutiny. They attract attention which is around, you know, at a time when there's discussion about how are sexual relations on a power gradient expected to go forward, right, or how would we mm. en envisage them in our um, society. And we've got Brittany Higgins, you know, as the backstory and so on. There's a way in which, sadly, for Christian Porter and also um, for the deceased woman, a way that they become immediately elevated into figures of that problem and people start thinking it through, however poorly, mm. in, in a representative that framework. Way, yeah. yeah, in yeah. that frame. Yeah. yeah, so all that can remain true and representative questions can even 
be considered in that context and the, the proper questions of public interest can be considered in that context. But I'm just asking whether there comes a moment where you go, there are things about this that are, I as a citizen need to know that are relevant for my duties as a citizen and then there are things that are not, mm. especially where they are untestable and unknowable. And if I begin to interrogate those things for myself, I will be unable to avoid reaching conclusions that I'm not entitled to because I will be processing untested and unknowable information and highly partial information. But you see, when speculation itself has been commodified, I mean, there really is an industry, like there really is a market for speculation. I'm stunned how many podcasts are simply speculation. Who knows what's going to happen? Let's speculate. Mm. Um, Because that's uh, also the way that people talk, right? It is. It it is. But I I also think, Waleed, you know, if we we view Christian Porter as a kind of limit case, I think there are certain things we can see as leading up to that. One would be the industry and speculation. The other... I get infuriated by all these speculations, queries, a kind of minor industry into the identity of Elena Ferrante, for instance. Who Mm. cares? Her novels are magnificent. That's one of those things where where knowing anything more about the person is simply irrelevant. Uh, W.H. Auden was infuriated by the decision to publish the diaries of Jane Austen, for instance. Who needs to know? So, uh, so I think it's this, it's this idea that if there are things that we don't know that we would really, really want to know, that really, really want to know can turn into a kind of obligation, if not a right. right but, but this presents itself as a need to know. And, and yes, I'm, that's right. I'm wondering whether or not that's true here. Like, is that need to know, that sense that we have of that, a product of a culture that does not understand the value of not knowing? Or is it a genuine claim, a claim to be taken seriously? Robin, I'm going to give the last word to you. Mm. Yeah. Um, so there's so many different ways to come at this. It really interests me. I mean, the first thing I wanted to point out was that that's actually Socrates' problem generally with writing. Yes, that's right. right? <laughs> yeah. That it can't defend itself once it gets detached from its context. And, of course, we're surrounded by a deluge of context-free mm. Yeah representation all the time. That probably does put the the only place that that value could then be put on it will be from the place of the reader. It's very hard to see where else the judgment could arise. And that might give you a moral opening to say, well, I will not read this, you know, or I I won't inquire further into that. I think that the notion of there being an unearned knowledge is very strong in um, some other kinds of culture, for example, in our own Indigenous cultures, Mm, that seems important, you know, to have a look at how do they manage knowledge and particularly because it's an oral culture. So um, I suppose you could say it has the virtue of of what Socrates wanted for knowledge, but they, without any kind of challenge, they can knit together realms of knowledge and some people, you know, there's secret women's business, secret men's business, the whole idea of knowledge belonging to a particular station in life is very important to how mm. they manage it. Mm. So that's a, another possible uh, yeah. a counterexample, I suppose. Which would be critiqued in our culture as a mechanism of control. Right? That's right. Without, Without, doubt. To, yeah, Without doubt. Which is a really interesting element of it. And this is where maybe cultural egalitarian, or our commitment to egalitarianism has actually undermined that idea of proper standing when it comes to knowledge. Mm. Do, do, do I have standing within communities of interest to know what I want to know? Mm. And the absence of any kind of epistemic humility along with it. That's right. Yeah, that's oh, right. without doubt. I think those are two very good comments on it, yes. Well, it took us an hour, but we finally got to an interesting comment. Thank you very much for helping <laughs> us get there, Robert. Uh, it was very nice Pleasure. of you to do that. It was a delight to speak to you. That's Robin Farrell, who's an adjunct professor in the Centre for Law, Art and Humanities at the Australian National University. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, which is now well at an end. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.